The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 25. Our subject is the tabernacle and the instructions for making the table of showbread. I apologize that without the projection system working now that it, I can't show you the pictures, but hopefully uh, those of you that have been with us, you do remember these. But we're looking at Exodus chapter 25, the making of the table of showbread. I'm just going to read verse number 23, and then we're going to go over to Leviticus chapter 24, and that is the command to make the bread for this table in the tabernacle. So first, Leviticus uh, or rather, Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 23. Thou shalt also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a, uh, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. So there's uh, part of the commandment for making the table. Then we go to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, and this is about the bread that goes on the table. And thou shalt take fine flour... And bake twelve cakes thereof, two-tenth deals shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial. Where have we seen frankincense before? That's kind of Christmassy, isn't it? Some frankincense. Uh, so there is frankincense that's put on the table of showbread. Um, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord, made by fire by a perpetual statute." I especially like verse number 8, which says, Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. I like that verse because I think the implications of it are obvious for modern Christians. There may be some of you that think that you're not very good at Bible typology, and this is what this study has all been about, typology. You might not think that you're very good at it, but then there are some places where things are said that are so clear that even a pure novice can't miss the meaning of this. The bread on the table, as we've shown you, represents Jesus Christ, who is the true bread that came down from heaven. Jesus explained that in the Gospel of John when he was discussing manna. Manna was physical bread that had a supernatural origin, supernaturally supplied for Israel's nourishment in the wilderness. And Jesus used that as, as an example of him. And he said that he was the spiritual food that came down from heaven. Now, I don't want to rehearse all of our last lesson, but this is what we looked at in point number one of the outline a couple of weeks ago. That was the purpose of the bread. And the purpose of the bread is nourishment. Now, of course, as we study this, the spiritual is the most important application. Uh, the priests put bread on the table week by week. Each Sabbath day, all of the bread on the table was replete, replaced. And God said, you are to do this continually. Now, the obvious 
easy application for modern Christians is just simply this, is that we are to continually eat spiritual food. That is, that we are to have a steady diet of God's Word, and that's where we feast on the spiritual nourishment that we, that we need. Jesus is found in the Word, and there isn't a strong relationship with Him without the Word of God. Now, the Sabbath day was a day of worship for Israel, and God gave that to set that special day apart so they would remember that He was to be the, the important focus of their lives. And I think the implications of that are all too obvious for Christians today because God preserved that very same spiritual application in the commemoration of Sunday worship. Now, there are too many Christians that treat Sunday as their day so much that it's very hard to find a church that has one more, one, uh, one extra service on Sunday. I mean, to find a, a service on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night, that is extremely rare in churches today. And then there are so many other things that are done then on Sunday that are our business, not the Lord's business, that we're not nearly as spiritual people as we think. There are too many people who, who think that the requirements are less today for for Christians than it was for Israel, simply because the ceremonial ordinances of the law were taken away. But all I can say, it's very poor uh, spiritual insight to think that the requirements of the new covenant that we live under in this age are less than those in the old. And we find that idea very clearly refuted by Jesus by looking into the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees that they had missed the important spiritual implications of the law. What Jesus did was to up the ante. He said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've broken the law even though you might not ever physically touch her. He said, if you're angry with someone so that that anger overtakes you, he says, that's the same if you commit murder. Now the implications are that in his kingdom... The spiritual law is to permeate our minds so that God wants the whole person, body, soul, and spirit to be committed to him. He said that we are to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. And I would simply ask, how are we going to do that when we can't even make a commitment to use the one day that God gave for his service to use in his service? Well, God... Uh, we're supposed to be spiritual people, and what we haven't done in many cases to even scratch the surface of the most elementary principles of the faith. God gave us this. He said, Sunday is my day. This is the day that you are to use for me. It comes right out of the Old Testament law. That's the implication that we see here about continual bread. So we have our excuses about what we do. We have the plans that we make. And what we try to do is to fit ourselves into the world's schedule rather than God's. And I would submit to you that God is far less happy with that, with a modern Christian, than he is with an Old Testament Israelite who failed to put bread on this table, to keep up that maintenance of putting the weekly bread on the table. And you say, well, why is that so? And the answer to it is because Israel was dealing in types. They were dealing with shadows of the law that weren't clearly seen. But here we are today, we do see, we clearly see. We have the New Testament, we have the New Covenant, which the Bible says is built on better promises, built on greater revelation. We have seen Christ, we know Christ. Christ came, He's been here. He's the fulfillment of all the types and 
So we know Christ better than the Old Testament Israelites did. So what do you think that does? Do you think that lessens our responsibility? Or does that increase responsibility? Well, I can give you an answer, a biblical answer, straight from Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 12. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now let me explain something. You're doing the right thing when you, when you ask for more in-depth teaching from God's Word. I mean, simply to know the Word is to know Christ better. But also understand that when you commit to knowing more, that puts you under a greater responsibility to do according to what you know. And so if you learn these things and refuse to do these things, the Word of God says the Bible, or the, uh, the Word says uh, the Lord will require it of you. And I know that there are some who say, well, sure, God's going to require it of us, but that, that's just a heavenly thing. There's going to be this loss of rewards, and the Bible teaches that. But they say that really doesn't matter because we're all going to be in heaven anyway. Well, let's just step into that a little bit further. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 3. The Corinthian church is a good test case for this because they were the type of Christians that we're talking about. They thought that they were so spiritual that they were above the apostle. So Paul's always talking to them constantly about being puffed up. And he even used some sanctified sarcasm in 1 Corinthians to teach them about their pride. I want you to listen to what he says about the loss of rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now there, of course, Paul is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And listen, listen to verse 15 again. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. I would challenge anyone here to explain the full implications of that statement. He shall suffer loss. If you've learned the truth of God's word and the expectations, expectations of God concerning his word, how does God count your service when you give him less? Well, I think this is the answer to that. He shall suffer loss. Albert Barnes had good insight on this. He wrote, he shall not be elevated to as high a rank and to as high happiness as he otherwise would. That which he supposed would be regarded as acceptable by the judge and rewarded accordingly shall be stripped away and shown to be unfounded and false. And in consequence, he shall not obtain those elevated rewards which he anticipated. This compared with what he expected may be regarded as loss. He shall be injuriously affected by this forever. It shall be a detriment to him to all eternity. The effects shall be felt in all his residence in heaven, not producing misery, 
but attending him with the consciousness that he might have been raised to superior bliss in the eternal abode. The phrase here literally means he shall be mulcted. The word is a law term. It means that he shall be fined. That is, he shall suffer detriment. Now, I confess to you, I can't explain all that fully. I don't know anyone who can. But surely Paul didn't use something here that's imaginary. If this makes no difference, then why did Paul state it? If this isn't knowledge that would help them to decide what they should do with their lives and how much more they should serve Christ and be dedicated to the Lord, then why does Paul even use this argument? And then we look at it and we say, well, how does this argument compare with what Jesus said about the servant who knew more and was held accountable for more because he had greater knowledge? Well, I think that's good for us to consider when we weigh the things that we do for the Lord on his day and the things that we do for self. And we simply have to ask the question, is the excuse good enough? Is the excuse good enough to overcome the eternal consequences of it? And if that doesn't matter, perhaps you're a Corinthian Christian with spiritual pride. As, I, as I've said, you're supposed to be better in your spiritual insight than Israelites who were told to put bread on the table continually. And the whole point is that you've seen the antitype. The antitype has come. You understand better than them. So the requirements for New Testament Christians are not less than what they were for Old Testament Israelites. And that being said, this figures into Jesus' teachings that spiritual food from heaven is superior to physical food that we have on earth. And he said, if you eat the food that I give and you drink from my wells of salvation, you will never hunger and thirst again. And that, that has to, to prompt us to think, why in the world are we eating from the world's trough when we have all these spiritual blessings that are found in Jesus Christ? What you choose to do for yourself, the Word of God very clearly says, will not satisfy you. What you choose to do on God's day for yourself cannot satisfy you. But what you choose to do for Christ brings eternal satisfaction. What are Christians known for? Well, I think that we should be known for our worship of the one true living God. You know, sometimes it's said that America has become a godless nation. When our country was founded, embedded into our official documents was belief in the one true God. But now it's said that we are godless. You know that's not true? There aren't any people in the world, in this entire earth, that are godless. The problem is that we have too many gods. And that goes for Christians too. We have too many gods. Did you know that the Bible says that materialism is idolatry? Colossians 3 verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do I need to tell you what idolatry is? I think you know, don't you? Idolatry is the worship of a false god. Ephesians 5, 5 says, A covetous man is an idolater. And did you know that covetousness can be anything that you desire above what you ought to desire? It can be money. It can be advantages. It can be advancement. It can be jobs. It can be children. If you put them above service to God. Many parents make their children an idol. And that's a problem 
Christians have too many gods. They're idolaters. And maybe we haven't made gods of wood and stone and, and metal and those things, but we have gods in our minds nonetheless. And so the bread from heaven is not the thing that satisfies because God's people just don't choose to eat it regularly. Now, I'm just trying to tell you that you need to be careful about how much you know from the Bible. The purpose of it is to make you more like Christ. It's to make you sanctified and made into the image of Christ. And I can tell you that the knowledge of Christ is going to be hard on your flesh. You'll have to make some choices that otherwise you would not make if you're going to be dedicated to God. If you're going to know more about the Word of God, you're going to have to choose things that are hard on your flesh. In fact, this is so tough that the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lust. Crucified. What a word for Paul to use in that context. He says crucified. And he put that in a sentence right next to Christ. Uh, you take that out of the sermon that I preached to you this morning about the cross and think about being crucified and how awful the thought is that you crucify something. I mean, what image does that put into your mind? He says, crucify the flesh. In other words, put it to the worst death possible. Make sure that it's dead. Make sure your flesh is dead by hammering nails into it. Make sure that it's dead by beating it. Make sure that it's dead so that you kill it not once, but you stick a spear into it to make sure that it's dead, that it has no life in it. But how many Christians do we find that are willing to sell out all for Christ and to crucify self when they can't even put showbread on the table continually on God's day. You know, sometimes it's my job to beat you up. You might not like it. Um, the Word of God is hard on us. I said it's hard on the flesh. And sometimes I've got to beat you up, beat you with many stripes before the Lord does it later. And uh, I know this, that we all need those stripes. We all do because we all can do better. We're not to commiserate with each other and excuse each other and because everybody does it. Because there's so many Christians that are like this. We don't excuse each other. We look to Christ because He didn't do it. He gave everything. He gave up everything to the Father. In fact, He gave up everything for you. And that's what He expects from us. Well, I need to move on from that. That was the first consideration. We looked at that mostly last week. The purpose of the bread, it is for nourishment. Now, secondly, let's talk about the participants in the bread. This is about fellowship. Who partakes in the meal of bread? Well, as we've seen in Scripture, the, the bread was for Aaron and his sons. They were chosen for priesthood. They enjoyed the unique privileges of priesthood. But when Christ died, the Levitical priesthood ceased. The physical appointment to priesthood was one of the vestiges of the law that was taken away when the ordinances of the law ceased. And then under the new covenant, there's a new spiritual priesthood. And since we've already studied types and figures of the priesthood, I'm just going to very briefly mention this familiar passage that we have in First Peter, where it says in First Peter 2.9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now let me point out first that the scripture says it is a chosen priesthood. The Old Testament priests were God-appointed, and so are 
New Testament believer priest. Probably no one was more surprised to be chosen for priesthood than was Aaron. He knew nothing at all about priestly duties. In fact, uh, Israel was at that time far away from God, didn't know much about uh, the Lord God that they served, didn't even know his name. And uh, without even God asking him, God chose Aaron. And did you know that it's the same with the believer priest? There's none of us that knew anything about priesthood. None of us sought the office. Neither did God inquire of us about it. But he chose us and then he gave it to us when he called us to repentance and faith. And then notice also that it's called a royal priesthood. And could I ask you in what person is priesthood and kingship united? Well, that, of course, is Jesus Christ, who is both priest and king, which has no provision in Old Testament law. And so this is the reason we find in the New Testament that Christ is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not the ironic Levitical priesthood, but he's after the order of Melchizedek, who is both king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And then if I might mention, on this table of showbread, there is a crown around the table that holds that, that encloses that bread, and that crown represents the kingship of Christ, and the priest partaking of the bread of the table represents and unites these ideas of priesthood and kingship. And so surely we as newly appointed believer priests, we have become participants in the heavenly bread of the king who is Christ. And so if you're saved, you are part of Christ's royal priesthood. You're in a family of priests. Not Aaron's family, but the order of a new priesthood that is Christ's family. And as his family, what we're to do is to seek fellowship with other family members. And what is one of the most common participations of families when they are together? You've got to eat. This is what we all do. I can't think of a family gathering that doesn't include food. Family reunions, there's food. At the celebration of the birth of a baby, there is food. At weddings, there is food. At the death of a family member, there is food. Have you noticed um, in the Hispanic culture what happens when a child has a birthday? I, I don't honestly understand how they get so many family members together. I mean, they, they need to rent out the entire public park with 14 jump houses and enough helium balloons to lift a semi-truck. But there's always food and food and food and more food. And I don't understand with so many family members, somebody's always having a birthday, so they're always doing this. And it happens all, all in the entire year, it seems like. You know, I love my family. I do. I think I get fed up at some point, no pun intended, uh, with all of that. But regardless of this, a common activity for people when we gather is food. That's a very ancient principle. Sitting down to a meal with others is a sign of fellowship. Henry Sotow wrote, a table is especially a place of friendly intercourse and communion. There, blessings are enjoyed and partaken of in common between the head and all the members of the family. There, the same food is spread alike before all. And there, the same sources of refreshment and joy are alike presented to all associated together. I regularly get invitations to eat. If someone wants to meet with me, I mean, this is always the first suggestion. Why don't we go get something to eat? A few weeks ago, um, Gary came over to my house. I, you know, with, with things that are going on there, I can't always get away. So I said, well, I'll just bring you something to eat. I'll bring you lunch. And so we get together and we talk and you just can't have a meeting without food. 
Our church functions usually have food involved. Nearly every fellowship has food, and from the looks of us, we've had plenty of fellowship. So let me say that this, this is just a common and ordinary thing for families to have fellowship. And if you think that you're a Christian and you can stay away from the fellowship and not have fellowship, that is like desertion of the family. And it says that you don't care for the family. Now before I dig into this idea of fellowship of the church indicated by priests and participation in the bread... I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This, of course, is the Lord's Supper chapter. And as you know, the Lord gave us an ordinance that is a fellowship ordinance. And many people are confused about this fellowship because they think that the communion is mostly about communion with each other. And, of course, corporate communion, that that figures into this. But the communion that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, is primarily about communion with Christ. The Lord's Supper is primarily about communion with Christ. Now let me show you this confusion in the Corinthian church. The problem was the sinfulness of the people and that there was disunity among them. I mean, even though they did gather to eat, there was so much sin and there was so much personal preference of one over another that it looked nothing like a unified group. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, Paul says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now these Corinthians were like all people, have always been. If you get together, they're going to eat. Now the problem here is they have fellowship that's that's going on with each other. And yet in this fellowship they're selfish. And what it turns out to be is just a bunch of people that are, that are parting and having a good time. There was no sense in this that they had fellowship with Christ. So looking at this, Paul sees it's wrong from every angle. And Paul just simply says, can't you just do that stuff at home? Can't you have that kind of fellowship elsewhere? Why would you bring that selfishness? Why, why would you not give to your brother who has need? Why would you bring that into the church unless you despise the church? So they couldn't bring those attitudes into the church because they couldn't commune with Christ if they can't fellowship properly with each other. Now when we come to the Lord's table for the communion, there we find bread that represents the body of Christ. The spiritual perception of Christ is the true manna that came down from heaven. That's present in the New Testament church just as it was in the Old Testament Testament tabernacle. Now I think we can take that Corinthian experience of misuse of fellowship and straighten that out to show what the Lord expects from us. That we are a church together in fellowship. And that fellowship contains some of the aspects that I want to show you. And I don't have time for one of these tonight. We'll pick up the others the next time. So first, if you're trying to follow the lesson sheet without the overhead, without the screen, uh, your first blank there at A, letter A, is just simply this, acceptable service. Acceptable service. 
A moment ago we were reading from 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that we are chosen by God as a royal priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And in the fifth verse, just before that, uh, Paul explained, or Peter rather explains, where this, this royal priesthood serves the Lord. Where does this take place? Well, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were the places of service. In fact, I don't remember reading anywhere that the priests performed their priestly duties in any other place. It's always tabernacle and temple. Now, we notice what Peter says in the fifth verse of that chapter. He says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, he says that you are living stones. You are built up into a spiritual house. Now, obviously, this spiritual house is not a literal building. It's not like a tabernacle or a a temple. The spiritual house is the church. And, And by the way, that shows that when the New Testament speaks of the church, it's, of course, not talking about this building in which we assemble. The church is the people. And as we've discussed on many occasions, we are not the church unless we are assembled. Now, that's a huge fallacy in the world of Christianity today to think that you have a church in individuals. In the Bible, the only time that you have a church is when it is assembled because that's what the word means. The New Testament Greek for church is ecclesia. That's a word that always means assembly. And in the New Testament where church is not intended, that word is translated that way as assembly. So that tells us that that the context determines whether the church is intended. And 97% of the places in the New Testament where this word ecclesia is used, it refers to a visible assembly of people. It never refers to an invisible non-group that does not assemble. And so when Peter says that we are built up into a spiritual house, he's not talking about the building where we assemble. He's talking about this group. He's talking about a group like we have right here in Berean Baptist Church tonight. This is the spiritual house that we are the church of the living God when we come into a covenant relationship to perform the Lord's work. Now in the Old Testament, tabernacle worship, acceptable service meant concentrating on priestly duties. So the work of the Old Testament priest has to do with sacrifices. It has to do with all the rites and rituals that are associated with sacrifices. And in the New Testament, acceptable service is done in the fellowship of the church as we concentrate on the one who is the bread of life. And the bread that we partake of is Christ. Now if you ask then, well how do we do that? How do we eat of Christ today? And I would tell you there's, there's only one way. The Word of God is the bread of life. Jesus is the living Word. And to partake of Him is to feast on Him through the Scriptures. I mean, I, I don't know of any other way that we partake of Christ unless we do it through His Word. So our study of the tabernacle and the many types of Christ is this assembly. What we're doing in this assembly is devouring Jesus Christ through His Word. God's Word is always the focus in our church because God's Word is His will for us and the will of God starts with Christians knowing Christ in every way. We are sanctified through the Word because that's what enables us to bear the image of Christ.
Now, as I've mentioned many times, in most of today's churches, the word is not the focus. The evidence is seen in how few people in Christian churches believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. And that every word on every page is God-breathed and is to be believed. Now you come here, we pick up the Bible, and there's not any doubt in our minds that the Bible is the Word of God. We see it written in the Bible. We believe that it's true. We accept everything the Word of God says as true. And if I could take you back to the Thessalonians series for just a moment, I've made much of this verse in chapter 2 about how the Thessalonians received what Paul preached as the Word. Now, to Paul, this is the real critical piece that tells them that he can teach the people and expect that they will increase in faith, love, and hope. So he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. And so I would submit to you that a... A church that does not believe that the Bible is the truth of the Word of God, they will never be sanctified. And I don't believe that it's likely that people in such churches are true believers. How do you deny the Word of God and Christ is the living Word and at the same time expect that you'll be saved by Him? But there are so many of these churches where the Bible is never emphasized as the bread of life, the the bread that must be ingested daily so that it becomes our actual life. There are so many of these churches that people don't even think about bringing a Bible to church any longer. You know, sometimes I don't even mention this on Sunday mornings because we have so many visitors that come without Bibles. And I wonder, what do you think we're going to do when we get here? What's the purpose of being here? Why do you come to church if it's not to hear the Bible read and explained? The Bible is our lifeblood. Did you know that there are nearly 500 references to bread in the Bible? Not all of them are about Christ and the Word, but they are all about the commonality of bread to every culture so that references to it are easily understood whether you're giving a literal reference or a metaphorical one. And that's how ordinarily, or ordinary rather, and common that the Bible should be to our church. It's like bread in every person's pantry. We never fail to check the bread, see how much we have before we go to the store. We're not going to go to the store to make, unless we've already checked to see if there's an adequate supply of bread. And so I'm telling you that the Bible should be so fundamental to our lives that to head off to church without the Bible would be like forgetting to put on our clothes. The visitors come into the church without Bibles. And and I'm not, uh, some of course don't, don't know about these things. I'm talking about people that are professed Christians and go to church all of the time and they just come to church and they don't expect that they'll need a Bible. Their church doesn't require it. Their homes are not regular with it. And so there's no sense that they need a Bible when they come here. You know, when I'm traveling, I always take a Bible with me. There have been a few times where I didn't. uh, I've always got my iPad with me and I can read the Bible from an iPad. But when I visit a church, I'm not very comfortable sitting in the pew reading the Bible from an iPad. Now, if I have both like I do with me tonight, I'll read some from 
the text here in the book and I'll read some from the iPad and so forth. And, but my preference is that I have a printed copy of God's Word in my hands. And I've already talked to you before about how valuable it is to be familiar with the printed copy. And then on the other hand, the, the iPad just doesn't seem to fit the picture of eating from the Word. I, I can't seem to get that symbolism right by that eating an iPad is the same as eating from the Word of God. You should listen to this from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. That just doesn't seem to fit that Jeremiah ate an iPad. And of course, that the verse is metaphorical. In our minds, we, we might relate that to a scroll. That's what you would have in in Jeremiah's time, and you would, uh, uh, today, of course, we have a bound copy of, a, of God's Word. That's what we think of. But there are cases, you know, in, in the Bible where the prophet is told to actually eat the Word of God. And he really actually gulps it down. I can't think in my mind that he ate an electronic device. Like, likewise, in Ezekiel, can you imagine the King James translation, uh, the translators translating Ezekiel this way. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this iPad that I give thee. Then I did eat, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee into the house of Israel and speak with my words of the iPad unto them. It doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Or same tweet to it, maybe I should say. So I think that you, that you get what I'm trying to say. When we think about this right here, the, the, the Bible carries with it a certain imagery, doesn't it? And one of those images is that we ingest it, that we eat the Word of God. Metaphorical again, of course. But we, we've got that feeling that holding the Word of God, reading the Word of God is the way that we ingest it and learn about Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I've strayed a bit from the subject, but I thought it was important for you to understand what most churches don't teach, and that is the doctrine of the iPad. So you've got that tonight. Um, so let's wrap up this point about acceptable service by saying that the fellowship of the church is when we come together to feast on the Word of God. And what is it in the Word that we're trying to get at? It's Christ. We're trying to get down to Jesus Christ. The nourishment is Christ. And everything that we learn in the Bible to do is the acceptable service of this fellowship. So when we look at the Word of God and says it says to do this and to stay away from that and this is the way you'll be pleasing to God and this is the thing that you should do, that is our acceptable service as spiritual priests. To pay attention and be obedient to the word of God. But churches don't focus on the word because the word is not enough to hold attention. They need programs. They need entertainment. The word is not enough. And I can tell you that on the table of showbread there was nothing but bread. I did mention frankincense just a minute ago, but that frankincense wasn't to be eaten. There aren't any condiments on this table. There's no pickles, no lettuce, there's no mayo or onions. Bread was enough. But that's not so in most churches, is it? If you advertise, well, in our church, this is all that you're going to get. You're going to get the Bible read, and the Bible preached, and the Bible prayed. That's all you're going to get. 
you'll never fill the pews. It's just not going to happen. I've never seen a church advertisement that puts the word in front of anything. The thing that's going to be advertised, programs, fun, adult activities, senior fellowships, nothing about the Bible. Not saying that these other things are necessarily wrong, but if that takes over the place of the Bible, then we're doing it all wrong. I long for the days of the Puritans. I long for the days of the apostles when we just put all things aside and concentrate only on the Word of God. I love modern conveniences. I like it when the, when the projector up here is working. You know, it makes things a little bit easier around here. But I long for the day when just the fellowship of the Word, that's enough. I realize we need other things to some degree, but I wonder if we had none of them, would we still have a church in Roner Park? Would this church still be here if that's all that we had? Well, I like to think that we would, but I would say in most places it wouldn't be true because they've just got to have something besides the Word to hold them in the pew. Well, I want to end there. We'll take up more next time. I've got more to say about participation. Church is not a spectator sport. God's not happy with lazy people. You're supposed to be lively stones, not stone-cold dead ones. Living stones, lively stones. That's God's spiritual house. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the word that we've read tonight. Thank you for the Bible. This is all about Christ. And we are to take it and feast upon it. Feed it into our souls. Ingest Christ daily so that he becomes our life. The very sustainer of everything that we are. Help us, Lord, to be that kind of church. Help us to have the Bible as our rule our rule of faith and practice, everything that we do is according to your word. And Lord, that is acceptable service. Thank you, Father, for the time we spent tonight in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.